The play is set in the 11th century, but its violence is unfortunately timeless. Macbeth is a perennially fascinating character precisely because he agonizes over the evil choices that he makes, and yet he makes them regardless. And, and in this, I think he's different from Shakespeare's other tragic heroes. My name is Katie Blankenau. Uh, I am a PhD candidate at Northwestern University, where I study Renaissance drama. Hello, and welcome to Asides, the new podcast from Chicago Shakespeare Theater. I'm Sarah B.T. Thiel, Public Humanities Manager at CST. Today, we'll hear Katie Blankenau introduce our 2018 production of Macbeth, directed by Aaron Posner and Teller of Penn & Teller. This episode comes from our preamble program, pre-show talks that take place at CST before most weekend matinees. This preamble was originally recorded on June 24th, 2018. Katie Blankenau, one of our newest scholars at Chicago Shakespeare, is a PhD candidate in English literature at Northwestern University, where she specializes in early modern drama and poetry. Katie joined the preamble program in 2018, and what you'll hear today was one of her very first talks at CST. Throughout this episode, you'll also hear the musical instruments of darkness designed and constructed by Kenny Woolison, performed by Ronnie Malley. I'll let Katie take it from here. Macbeth is my personal favorite of Shakespeare's tragedies. I love the play's gorgeous, evocative imagery, uh, the, the way it mixes bizarre and, and beautiful metaphors with the most basic, heartfelt human emotions. Uh, plus, there are witches who tell riddles. So, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, although I, I have worried uh, about what my love of Macbeth says about me, uh, because in the play, the title character commits terrible crimes in pursuit of the Scottish crown. And Macbeth's partner in life and partner in crime is his wife, Lady Macbeth. She has no other name other than the lady. Uh, and together, they embark on a tumultuous, terror-filled reign that eventually tears them and their country apart. Although there is already plenty of trouble in Scotland when the play begins. Uh, the the uh, first act features a, the end of a battle between the forces of Duncan, the Scottish king, and a Norwegian invasion aided by Scottish traitors. And after winning this battle as Duncan's generals, Macbeth and his friend Banquo famously and faithfully encounter three witches, uh, or as they're called in the text, the three weird sisters. And the weird sisters greet Macbeth with the title of Thane, or Lord, of Cawdor, which is the title of one of the fallen Scottish traitors, and promise that he will be king. And they predict that Banquo's children will be kings. This moment encapsulates some of the play's central themes and questions. Whether the motivation for evil deeds comes from within or without, the relationship between truths and lies, and the crucial role played by children and inheritance in this play. To get to those themes, I'd like to start not with the plot of the play, but with the text. The text of Macbeth was first printed in the great collection of Shakespeare's works, the first folio, uh, which was published in 1623, although uh, Macbeth was probably written uh, around 1606. 
And the printers of the first folio seem to have used the theater's prompt book copy of the text. Uh, that is, they used the copy that would have been kept backstage and consulted by the prompter, whose job was to uh, remind actors of their lines if they forgot them. One of the reasons that scholars suspect that the printers were using a prompt book copy is the presence of explicit stage directions, like the repeated directions to ring the bell and knock. And stage directions like this are fascinating reminders of all the people who were and still are involved in the production of a play. And reading those directions, for a moment, we can catch a glimpse of the 17th century prompter uh, sitting backstage and jumping up to ring a bell or knock on wood when he gets to his cue. And if you're familiar with the play, you might also remember that those two sounds, the ringing bell and the knock at the door, are very important in Macbeth. And in the production today, Posner and Teller, the co-directors, of course, follow those stage directions. And I'd like to suggest that we, too, can follow those stage directions to create an audible guideline of sorts that leads us through sound to one of the first puzzles of the play, the problem of evil and where it comes from. Macbeth is a perennially fascinating character precisely because he agonizes over the evil choices that he makes, and yet he makes them regardless. And in this, I think he's different from Shakespeare's other tragic heroes. Lear goes mad, Othello is deceived by Iago, but Macbeth knows exactly what he's doing. And he describes the wickedness of his own actions with devastating clarity. But the driving force behind those actions is less clear. Uh, is it some evil already within him or some external malice that prompts his crimes? And the play, I think, demands that we ask this question, uh, but it doesn't tell us how to answer it. And one of the small ways that I think the play is alerting us to this question of internal versus external forces uh, is through that stage direction, Ring the Bell. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth arrange the bell as a signal that the coast is clear to murder Duncan. Uh, spoilers. Um, <laughs> and when he hears it, Macbeth says, I go and it is done. The bell invites me. And he continues on. But I think it's worth pausing over that particular line, the bell invites me. Macbeth seems to be looking for ways to externalize the motivation for his crime. He knows he's making the choice, but his language still reaches outside himself. The bell invites me. He puts the impetus for action, the, the invitation, on the bell. And to me, this suggests that Macbeth at least in this moment, sees himself or wants to see himself as being led or worked on by outside forces. Horror from the time which now suits with it. Was I threatened? He lived. Words to the heat of deeds, too cold breath gives. I go. And it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan. For it is a knell that summons thee to heaven. Or to hell. There are other significant bells, too. 
You'll notice Posner and Teller also use bell chimes to signal soliloquies, uh, particularly in the early moments when Macbeth and Banquo are mulling over the witch's prophecies in, in their own heads, uh, but not overheard by each other. And each man is trying to figure out uh, what the witch's predictions might mean, how he feels about them, how he thinks his companion might react, and what it might mean to react to those predictions. When they do, we hear the chimes. And when I hear them, for me, they operate as a, an outside signal of an interior thought process. And this suggests that the bell's invitation is actually coming from within, uh, that what Macbeth chooses to interpret as an outside force perhaps originates in his own thought. And in this way, for me, the soundscape of the production is inviting us to consider the tension between Macbeth's interior motivation and his sense of being driven or invited by outside forces. However, bells aren't the only suggestion of outside forces that might or might not be working on Macbeth. Uh, there is, of course, his wife, whose influence on Macbeth uh, has led one scholar to comment that it is as if marital intimacy were akin to demonic possession. I've never been married. Uh, hopefully, those of you who have been married don't experience it like that. Uh, but Lady Macbeth certainly uses her intimate relationship with her husband to keep him committed to their course of action. But Lady Macbeth's motivations are as murky as her husband's. And I'll, I'll touch on the lady again later, but I do want to suggest that if there is possession here, it's mutual. Both husband and wife seem to trust each other deeply. Uh, they understand and, and even love one another. But as their plots spiral into ever-increasing paranoia and violence, their marriage becomes yet another casualty. We fail! But screw your courage to the sticking place. And will not fail. When Duncan is asleep, whereto the rather shall his day's hard journey soundly invite him? His two chamberlains will I, with wine and wassail, so convince that memory, the warder of the brain, shall be a fume. When in swinish sleep their drenched natures lie, as in a death, what cannot you and I perform upon the unguarded Duncan? What not put upon his spongy officers? Who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? And I'd encourage you to pay attention to when the Macbeths seem to understand one another and when that mutuality starts to break down. Uh, in Posner and Teller's staging, the first half closes with the couple united in possession of the throne. Uh, but I think it's interesting to ask whether they are still able to understand one another. After this moment, they never appear on stage together again. I will tomorrow to the weird sisters. No! More shall they speak. For now, I invent to know by the worst means, the worst. I am in blood, stepped in so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go war. Strange things I have in head that will to hand, which must be acted ere they may be scanned. 
to the most mysterious of the outside forces that seem to be at work on Macbeth, and in this production, on Lady Macbeth as well, namely the witches. One of the central puzzles of the play is where the witches fit into this problem of evil, uh, of interior versus exterior motivation. Do they cause Macbeth to do what he does, or do they merely foresee what he will do? Are they onlookers or instigators of this tragedy? And it's a question that I think Shakespeare very intentionally leaves unanswered. Macbeth's witches are often linked to King James's fascination with witchcraft. Uh, James was king of Scotland and eventually succeeded Elizabeth to become the king of England in 1603. And he was also the patron of Shakespeare's company. Uh, and the players were probably eager to please their new Scottish king by appealing to his interests. James believed that witches had been involved in a plot against him in Scotland. Uh, he wrote a book on witchcraft, and he even attended several witch trials. But Shakespeare's witches can't be caught and tried. Uh, there are quite a few uh, pieces of 17th century witchcraft lore that are scattered throughout the play, and some of those uh, echo information in James's own book. But they aren't particularly comforting witches to present to an anxious king. Uh, James, I think, sought to protect himself from supernatural evil by outlining how to punish supposed witches uh, and, and amassing facts and knowledge about them. But it's impossible to pin down the witches of Macbeth. It's not clear where they come from, what, if anything, they want, uh, or whether they are more or less than human. As Charles Lamb wrote in the 19th century, they come with thunder and lightning and vanish to airy music. This is all we know of them. And because this is all we know of the witches, and they don't appear very often in the text, uh, it's up to each production to figure out how to use them. And in the portrayal of the weird sisters that you'll see today, uh, they are, in one sense, onlookers. Posner and Teller bring them on stage much more often than they're actually called for in the text. Uh, and you'll see them, sometimes when you don't expect it, and they're always watching closely. They become, in fact, a kind of second audience. But the witches, I think, are not just onlookers in this production. Uh, they also contribute dramatically to the soundscape of the play. It's interesting to me that Lamb chose to describe everything we know about the witches in terms of sound. They come with thunder and lightning and vanish to airy music. Uh, the thunder and lightning is, of course, a reference to the witches' first lines, but it's the airy music that really stands out in this production. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done. When the battle's lost and won. That will be ere the set of sun. Where the place upon the heap. There to meet with Macbeth. sound designer and the three actors who play the Weird Sisters have created an eerie arrangement of music and sound. And when I'm listening to this production, for me, the use of sound elevates the witches beyond the position of mere onlookers. Uh, to the extent that they are making music, they are participating in the onstage action, but what their participation is doing is up for interpretation. Are they sighing with delight at human evil? Or are they perhaps weaving a spell with their airy music? 
there's a lot to be said about the way that Posner and Teller are using sound in this production. Uh, so I'll move on to one of the other stage directions, knock. And knocking at a door is heard throughout the central scenes of Macbeth, uh, both before and after the interval. And uh, be on the lookout for the moment when the witches themselves get a knock at their door uh, in, in the second half. And in that scene, the evil outside and the evil inside switch places or meet in a moment that once again asks us to wonder who is driving whom to create the atrocities that mount up in the second half of this play. And the charm is firm and good by the pricking of my thumbs. Something wicked this way comes. Open locks, whoever knocks. How now, secret black and midnight hag? What if you do? A deed without a name. I conjure you, by that which you profess, however you come to know it, answer me. To what I ask you. Speak, demand. Will answer. Say if thou'd rather hear it from our mouths or, or from, from our masters. But perhaps the noisiest uh, and most famous knocking happens after Duncan's murder in a fascinating scene that switches suddenly from away from the affairs of kings and lords to the porter of the castle. Uh, and a porter's job was to answer the door. Uh, but as you'll see, this porter has been partying a bit too hard, uh, and he takes his own sweet time when he hears the knocking at Macbeth's gate. And the sound of knocking and the porter's hangover uh, remind us that there is an outside world beyond the feverish headspaces of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth that we've been inhabiting up until that moment. But that outside world is still a space of uncertainty. You'll notice that there are several doors um, in the set, and we don't always know who's behind those doors. And for me, this parallels our uncertainty over where the danger, where the evil comes from, inside or outside. Uh, the porter jokes that it might be the devil knocking, but the irony, of course, is that the devil might already be inside the castle. And I'm suggesting that we pay attention to this Porter scene, uh, not only because of its use of sound, but also because this production has treated the scene very carefully. Over the centuries, the, the Porter scene has puzzled and even irritated scholars uh, because it has seemed unnecessarily comic. Particularly in the 18th century, scholars were convinced that Shakespeare would never have put in this scene uh, and ruined the high tragedy with this drunk doorman. But I think one of the points that the play and this production is trying to make is that the line between horror and humor is very thin. And the space between the two is where this tragedy operates. Uh, sometimes the only approach to horror is laughter, sarcasm, irony, understatement. Uh, and in this case, the Porter's comedy in this first act scene sets up dramatic right. irony that follows. All right, I'm coming, I'm coming. Where the hell's the fire? Oh, oh that's disgusting. <laughs> you need a hanky? No, oh, knock, 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 knock. Hey, lady, knock, knock, an equivocator. Ah, ah, an equivocator whom? <laughs> an equivocator, oh, 
will swear in both scales against either scale. Or one who'll commit treason. But mark you, he'll never equivocate his way into heaven. <laughs> And in the text, Shakespeare also used this moment to work in some topical references. Uh, it's actually one of the ways that scholars date the play to sometime in 1606. Uh, the porter makes a very dense joke about a traitor's execution and an equivocator trying to equivocate his way to heaven. And this is generally taken as a reference uh, to the execution in 1606 of a Jesuit priest, uh, Father Henry Garnet, who was implicated in the gunpowder plot. And the gunpowder plot was a conspiracy to assassinate King James and blow up Parliament. Uh, and if it had succeeded, it would have essentially um, wiped out the English government in one fell swoop, as Macduff would say. And for the mainly Protestant population of England at the time, Jesuits were associated with a particular kind of untruth uh, known as equivocation. And equivocation can mean quibbling, uh, can mean paying attention to details to obscure something else, and more broadly, it refers to telling a seeming or partial truth while hiding a larger lie. But why focus on this one word? Posner and Teller have adapted this scene carefully. Uh, they've cut the dense topical jokes that have sort of been old news since 1607, uh, and instead they've gone with something that's a bit more recognizable, as you'll see. But equivocation is still there. It's still relevant, not so much because of the gunpowder plot, but because all throughout the play, these characters are grappling with the relationship between truth and lies. For example, Near the end of the play, Macbeth begins to see the ways that the witch's predictions are coming true. Um, surprisingly, he's not happy about it. And he says, I pull in resolution and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. Lies that are like truth and truths that tell lies run all throughout the play. And like the line between humor and horror, the line between truth and lie starts to wear away, and it gets very hard for characters to tell the difference. And this affects not only the Macbeths, but also the characters aligned against them. Late in the second act, Duncan's son, Malcolm, meets the most honest character in the play, Macduff, the Thane of Fife. And as you'll see, they go through a negotiation between truths and lies in an attempt to figure out whether they can trust one another. And their truths and lies uh, might not be as insidious as the witches, but they show the ways that in this increasingly untrustworthy society, uh, even the best people begin to become equivocators. So the play insists that we pay attention to moments of equivocation, uh, sometimes amusing moments, sometimes horrifying ones, but they're all moments where a lie is also a truth, and a truth is like a lie. And even the children have to figure out how lies work. Uh, in one of the only scenes of relative domestic happiness in the play, Macduff's wife and children talk about the fact that Macduff has fled Scotland and been labeled a traitor. And Lady Macduff has to explain to her children that a traitor is someone that swears and lies. And by this point in the play, the irony is clear. The king himself is a traitor, and Scotland is full of liars. And this scene with the Macduffs is significant because it marks, uh, as well, one of the performance decisions that really stood out to me in this production. The text includes only one of Macduff's children, uh, and, but Posner and Teller have introduced a second child to the scene. And they also bring the Macduff family on stage in the first half of the play, although they aren't mentioned in the text there. 
And for me, those performance decisions highlight the weight placed on children in this play. Our father a traitor, mother? What is a traitor? Why, one that swears and lies. And be they all traitors who do so? Every one that does so is a traitor and must be hanged. And must they all be hanged that swear and lie? Every one. Who must hang them? Why, the honest men. Then the liars and swearers are fools. For there are liars and swearers enough to beat the honest men and hang up them. When Banquo and Macduff first meet the witches, Banquo asks them whether they can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not. And the language of growth and barrenness runs throughout Macbeth and is, I think, especially meaningful in its association with children. Banquo has a son, and the witches tell him that his children will be kings. Macduff is separated from his children. And Lady Macbeth states that she has nursed and loved a child. Amongst all these children, which grain will grow and which will not? Unlike the question of the source of evil in the play, this question is answered quite clearly in the text, except in one respect. Lady Macbeth implies that she has had a child, but the Macbeths do not have children. And every production of Macbeth has to deal with this conundrum. Uh, this uh, includes film adaptations. The very influential uh, Japanese film by Kurosawa takes one route. Uh, a more recent 2015 film starring Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard takes another route. Uh, and in Posner and Teller's staging, we see Lady Macbeth with an infant's coffin. And it's a moment that visually connects the Macbeths, the child, and the witches in an image of grief and anger and loss. I found it particularly fascinating that the witches are included in this scene because for me, it once again raised this mystery of evil's, evil's source. The witches are there. Have they caused this somehow? Are they working on Lady Macbeth? But at the same time, the purely human motivation of grief and rage are equally and emphatically present. So who's to say? In any case, the effects of the Macbeth's childlessness echo throughout this production, um, all the way to Lady Macbeth's famous sleepwalking scene. She does now. Look how she rubs her hands. It is an accustomed action with her to seem thus washing her hands. I have known her continue in this a quarter of an hour. Yet here's a spot. She speaks. I will set down what comes from her to satisfy my remembrance the more strongly. Out! Damn spot! Out, I say! One. Two. Why then? Tis time to do it. And you'll hear it, too, in Macbeth's recognition that, as he says, he holds a fruitless crown and a barren scepter. Their grain will not grow. In one sense, then, we can see the play as a very dark fairy tale in which children play a consequential and a tragic role. And of course, in any fairy tale, uh, magic is important. And we can't think about truths and lies in this production without thinking about the illusions of magic. Teller, who co-directed today's production, is one half of the entertainment and magic team, Penn and & Teller. And he and Posner also directed The Tempest at Chicago Shakespeare in 2015, which some of you may have seen. 
And in The Tempest, the magic was intensely theatrical, uh, because in that play, magic is a metaphor for the theater itself. Prospero and Ariel use their magic to manipulate, but also to amaze and entertain their audiences. Uh, in Macbeth, however, magic is equally important, but rather than a metaphor for the wonder of theater, magic serves as a reminder of the breakdown of interior and exterior realities. It, it elicits the psychological horror of not being able to tell the difference between what is outside and what is inside, what is real and what is not. By the end of the play, the only other people who have seen all that Macbeth has seen are the audience. And we and Macbeth share this experience in potentially unsettling ways. Uh, and you might find yourselves uh, trying to figure out how the magic is working. Uh, and what's interesting about trying to figure that out is that in doing so, we're following what Macbeth himself is trying to do, trying to figure out who's ringing the bell, who's knocking at the door, and what that might portend. Thank you. That's it from us this week. We'll be back next time with a preamble from our recent production of Emma, a musical adaptation of Jane Austen's novel by Paul Gordon and directed by artistic director Barbara Gaines. That talk will come to you from yours truly. During this production, you're going to see the world through Emma's eyes. And we fall in love with her, but it's a bit confusing because though we love her, we're not really sure if we like her. What does Chicago Shakespeare Theater mean to you? What questions do you have for CST scholars and artists? We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to asides at chicagoshakes.com or leave a voicemail at 312-667-5631 and we'll respond in a future episode. Are you enjoying Asides? Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Your comments will help us shape future episodes and content. Asides is presented by the John W. and Jean M. Rowe Inquiry and Exploration Series. Please consider donating to Chicago Shakespeare Theater's Brave New World campaign. To join us in supporting audiences, artists, students, and our community, please visit chicagoshakes.com slash brave new world. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>